Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and children, if there are any out there as well. I doubt it. it. <laughs> Probably not, or indeed anyone. Especially maybe. this one, yeah. Don't want to watch black and white. <laughs> yes, it's me, Russell Guyver, and my cohort, Phil it's Newman. Me, Hello, Phil, Phil Newman. Good evening. Good evening. We're back again. It's been a bit of a while since last time, but yeah, it, it, I've been very busy watching films that I've never seen before. It, it's been it's been interesting, <laughs> and it's been quite fun. Yeah, and due to a technical hitch at one point, we've had to postpone this, so it's a bit later than you might have imagined for the next one. But they're going to come thick and fast because we've got something else lined up as well in two or three weeks' time, which we'll publish around then. Um, But this one is, as you've alluded to, a black and white era genre that we've gone for. Uh, It is a genre this time, and it is the, or sub-genre, you could call it, actually. It's the screwball comedy, Phil. That's what we're going to be doing tonight, isn't it? Um, Principally the classic period of 1934 to 1942. Indeed, of which you are very well acquainted. Well, you are I I wasn't a couple of months (laughs) ago, but yeah, I'm still nowhere near your level of uh, understanding or knowledge, but... um, I've, I've built up a little bit and I know a lot more about what I'm talking about than, than I did before the summer, that's for sure. <laughs> Excellent, good to hear. I've been watching um, them thick and fast. Yeah, we'll be um, we'll be definitely getting into this in a lot of detail. Phil, you're going to do your classic customary intro uh, with a bit of research stuff yeah. um, to come up as well. We're then going to go on to our fives as usual, counting down fives down to one alternately. Um, and um, we'll see what, what, where it leads us. Um, we're also going to be having a nice little bit of beverage to help Obviously. us along our way. So um, what, are you start, what are you starting off with this evening? Right. Well, I'm going with something gifted to me for my birthday, actually, which is um, one of three beers that came with a pint glass from a friend of mine, Raymond. And it is the IVB, which is the... Um, Itchin something brewery. Um, it's Watercrest Best, which is obviously oh, okay. a bitter. Um, so yeah, it's um it's nice. Yeah, it's quite quite flavoursome. Goes down, kind of nice sort of ruby brown colour. Yeah, that's not that's a colour, is it? Really ruby brown. Anyway, that's what I'm calling it. And um, not too bad. What about yourself? So I'm on the London Beer Factory, and I'm on Jungle Ooh. Trip, which is a New England pale ale, and it's not nice. too bad at all. Going down Excellent. very sweetly and very nicely indeed. <laughs> Cheers. Absolutely. Yeah, Phil's been to the loo already. We haven't even started recording. There we go. (laughs) Right then, let's get to it. So we are talking screwball comedies. We are, first of all, just to stipulate, um, we are sticking to what is the traditionally prescribed era, which is the 30s and 40s. They were kind of precursor type of films to this that were running up to the 30s. We're talking about films strictly that have fallen within the decades of the 30s and 40s. So we're not talking Some Like It Hot, which definitely could be called a screwball comedy. And I love that film, but that's much later, for example. Um, And I think we're we're avoiding things like um, the the Marx Brothers type of stuff as well, which could have been in here, but it's um, sort of... um, a bit more than just a screwball comedy. It's almost yeah. like a different category. We might factor that in or look to do them separately or something at some other time. So don't be afraid. Don't be worried if you yes. are thinking, are they going to have Doc There's Soup? There's more films that, like that I haven't seen that I'll have to get around to watching at yeah. some point. Yeah. So Particularly we're talking, from this period. Yeah. So what we're talking, we've, we've described the, the categories in age. Um, what we're talking about in terms of the typicality of the genre it's going to be described very eloquently now by my cohort. Oh, no pressure. Over to, over to you, Phil. So, <laughs> screwball comedies are a subgenre of the romantic comedy that became popular during the Great Depression. Obviously, things weren't too hot in America at that time. So, this originated in the 30s, and then it thrived, as we said, the classic period ended in 1942. Now, it's very much arose in response to censorship. So, the hate, the 
increasingly enforced Hayes Code came in in 1934 and brought in quite a lot of rules about what could be shown on screen and what couldn't be shown on screen. And what this kind of subgenre did was was kind of try to kind of covertly come up with ways around it to still show the things that people want to see on screen. Uh, so, for example, depictions of extramarital affairs weren't allowed. So a lot of these films, you see a couple that get divorced and then flirt with other people and then get back together again. No spoilers, I don't think. But... <laughs> um so, I mean, it sort of satirises the kind of traditional love story kind of is characterised by normally a strong female character that dominates relationship with the, uh, the central male whose masculinity is constantly challenged. It's a real battle of the sexes and, and it's a theme that knew very much a new theme for kind of Hollywood audiences at the time. There are quite a few, um, it puts its emphasis on kind of funny spoofing of love with the traditional rom-com, you know, is very very much different so other kind of elements that are kind of kind of crucial to it that you see coming up again and again in these films are really really fast-paced overlapping repartee uh farcical situations escapist themes disguise masquerade plot lines involving courtship marriage particularly if they've got Cary Grant in them as I'm sure we'll be getting into and they often depict kind of social classes in conflict a lot as well so if you're kind of not still not quite sure what we're talking about in terms of, sort of more recent films that could be classified as a screwball comedy pretty much half the films by the Coen brothers I think you could probably say so something like um, Raising Arizona or The Hudsucker Proxy or Intolerable Cruelty or Hail Caesar they're very much a kind of throwback to kind of the classic screwball period yeah, they're really much keepers of the flame, aren't they? Actually, yeah, definitely. that's who I think of mostly, really, for that. They've done, I think, four or five so far that you could classify as that. And they've come through the years, as we've mentioned before, that, yeah, some like it hard. There's others through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s remakes, other, other new ones to the genre. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a sort of, there's a kind of quite a close knit bunch of actors, actresses, and directors that we'll be coming back to a lot <laughs> over, the, over the next hour and a half, two hours, or however long this goes on for. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think you've nailed it, really. That does. I mean, it's kind of a, a little bit of a funny one to categorise, isn't it? Because um, this, it's open to interpretation a little bit. But I, I think as long as you've got most of those key components, yeah. there's a romantic underlying story, fast paced dialogue, as you said, the repartee, often like absolute roller coaster pace dialogue in some oh, cases, definitely. which, again, I'm sure we'll get on to in, in the case of a couple of these films. And yeah, there's the, the there's this, this t- twist in the story element as well, you know. Uh, will they won't they we always know they will <laughs> yeah. type of scenario but i know that's also common in other genres but but also the, the particular way the mistaken identity thing it's almost going back to shakespeare with the comedy of errors that's you could almost say that's a screwball comedy in one yeah. sense um so it's yeah i mean there's there's lots of elements to it it does often feature kerry grant typical to the genre you've got preston sergis and um you have the likes Frank of billy wilder yeah. and yeah Frank Capra, exactly, who, who's very prominent within the genre. And, uh, yeah, and, and, they're, and they're usually great fun if they're done well. And lots of them were done well. Yeah, and they're all quite short as well. They're quite brisk. Most of them kind of go along yeah. a few hour and a half and job done. Absolutely, yeah. So it's, it's not Which, like Westerns where it, was, where, we, where it was taking me three hours to watch almost every <laughs> film. But most of these are over in about 80, 90 minutes. Yeah, and I've, I've we've said it before, and I'll say it again. Um, I'm an advocate of films that are tight, 
and just to the point. And we we're just talking about a couple of recent releases that have come out, which I'm sure we'll discuss or uh, either in passing or as categorised in our 2021 films yeah. of the year. But we've yeah. re- we've recently seen the June film and Bond, which are both very much event films. So at the very least, they'll get a mention. Whether whether they'll be picked, who knows? But both of those films yeah. are films which are very long. June is two and a half hours. Bond is three hours. Um, but I would one thing I would say for both of those is that the time goes by quickly, so it doesn't feel like it's too long. I think with something like screwball comedies in general, it's not something that's going to really do well if it goes over two hours. If, if it's where they won't, they there's, there's only so long you can wait. Exactly. Around, isn't there? Yeah. So only so much contrived plot contrivance that you can carry on yes. spinning really to, to to keep things fun. Um. So, but I'm an advocate of films like this, comedies, things with a romantic theme. Um. Even kind of sometimes in the case of action films, it can be the case. I like a quite tight 90, 95 minutes or even less, not a moment wasted. And some films still do that now. I think they're the right length, but a lot of films don't. And in the classic quite Hollywood bloated, era, yeah, yeah the, the better films, certainly in the classic Hollywood era, well-paced, well-edited, well-directed, well-acted, good dialogue, that stuff together allows them to just trip by just just zip along and you, it's over before you know it and that makes for entertainment at the highest level they don't waste a second they're no, economical i think is the thing yeah very much so yeah so yeah as i said this is the kind of something that i've never really watched and well i've never really i never ever watched any of these films uh before a couple of months ago to my shame and regret i'm amazed um, phil it, especially with Cary grant you're a big Cary grant i don't love Cary grant yeah. i've seen all of the always hitchcock films and yeah. And a couple of the other ones, but I've never really kind of gone in deep on, on these, and it's it's been quite refreshing. It's been quite nice going through watching all these, basically from a sort of blank piece of paper and coming in, not really knowing much about this any of these at all. Yeah, right. And for me, so, by by the way, just to say for me, it, this is kind of Christmas time. I was I've watched a load of old old films on TV, maybe in other holiday periods as well. So for me, it might it might even be a daytime viewing experience on a small screen. Um, going back historically, I've since seen a load of stuff on. Uh, bigger screens in retro screenings on Sundays at cinemas or at the BFI in general. But um, the, yeah, it's kind of it's quite nice to see them on the big screen. I know we weren't you weren't able to do that for this, but no. um, the, I, I should say any of these films are great on the small screen. They work well enough because it's not too visceral. Yeah. But still see them on the big screen if you can. And which ones are we going to recommend? Here we go to it. Then, right. Jill. So five. I think it's my turn to start. So I'm going to come in at number five. 1941, Howard Hawks, a director that I'm sure will be coming up. We'll be talking quite a lot about this evening. Um, I'm coming up with the film Ball of Fire. Oh, yeah. So, you started off, in, in well, in a ball of fire, haven't you, Phil? Yeah. Lovely. Right. <laughs> Interesting. So, right. Um, okay. so basically, this is about a group of professionals, led by Gary Cooper, who are all compiling an encyclopedia whilst living together. Most of them are are kind of quite old and geriatric all in new york whilst researching american slang gary cooper goes out goes out on the street meeting people and comes into contact with nightclub singer sugar puss o'shea <laughs> by barbara stanwick we're talking about bond earlier that sounds like a bond yeah character. definitely yeah <laughs> She's uh, reluctant to kind of get involved in his research, but realising that the police are after her for her connections to a certain mobster, she moves into the house, gets on the wrong side of the housekeeper, is much loved by a lot of the old men who have very little uh, knowledge or understanding of the opposite sex, and obviously sparks start flying with Gary Cooper. 
Oh, it's a great film. I really, really enjoyed it. Have you seen it? No, I have to confess, I've not seen that one. Um, I'm aware of it, mainly from research for this, actually. Um, but that's one that's completely passed me by. So it's going to have to be one just purely for recommendation uh, value here for me. Um, but it sounds intriguing. Sounds like you've got your classic elements there. Yeah, so Howard Hawks. Um, Billy Wilder actually wrote the script. He oh, actually yeah. said that he was going to direct all of his own scripts because he didn't want studios or director interference. Studio interference is something else that we'll be getting into this evening. Um, on this case, he wasn't kind of quite so uh, used to directing and he kind of, and the Hawks allowed him on set to kind of watch him in action so he could study his method. And then after that, Billy Wilde was very much his own writer director after watching his film. So it's the second 1941 Cooper Stanwyck film after Meet John Doe. You'll find that a lot of these films, they come out, there's so many of them, they come out so quickly, they rushed through. Um, Ginger Rogers and Carol Lombard turned down the Sugarpuss role. Uh, Lucille Ball was almost cast until Gary Cooper came on board and he recommended Stanwyck, uh, who was actually nominated for an Oscar, although she didn't win. It didn't actually win any Oscars. I think it was nominated for a, a, quite a few of them. Um, it, I mean, this is just it's just great. It's it's got a lot of the kind of things that you would expect from a screwball comedy. It's got the 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 quips between Sugarpuss O'Shea and, and Gary Cooper's character um, you've got all of the old uh, professors who were based on the Seven Dwarves because that had only come out a couple of years before and was obviously doing a great trade so they've all got their own little characters of what they're into and what they're what they're, what they're not into they've all got their own foibles you've got a bit of danger coming in because you've got the mob and the police around this is actually a guy some couple of interesting musical numbers in it in one part when they when we meet Sugarpuss O'Shea they go into a club and they see her singing a song and then she comes and sits down with the band leader Gene Krupa at a table who was playing the drums before and he they redo the song but he's playing drums with a match box and using match sticks and he's all sitting around a table when everybody's sitting around them that's uh, great it, it, it's really really real escapism and I thoroughly recommend it it was a big boff office hit uh but i think due to the kind of terms of the contracts i think archeo lost the, quite a lot of money in, in the end unfortunately mm. but a great yeah. film and it's well worth the sort of hunting down and watching brilliant fantastic stuff there we go so yeah number five as i said i haven't um, i haven't seen that so i can't add anything to that one to be honest on this occasion but i will be seeking it out when i can that sounds great Brilliant. Right, do you want my number five then? Shall I yes, reveal? let's go in. Okay. It's one of the classics. Um, a lot of people will know this film. If you haven't, you should do. You should check it out. It's The Philadelphia Story. It's uh, also is... my number four, so uh, let's go oh, well, in. How, how convenient. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk Julie about this. Right, so we are talking um, MGM production. Uh, this Actually, we're talking about tighter films. This is actually... An hour and fifty-two longer. minutes. It's of hours so it's a bit longer. Time. Yeah, yeah. But it's I, I mean, again, it's not too long. It's the right length, I think, for the film. Anyway, it's directed by George Kukul, uh, produced by Joe Mankiewicz, and it stars Kerry Grant. Here he goes, <laughs> Catherine Hepburn, another very familiar face yes. in the screwball comedy subgenre, uh, and it has James Stewart as well. So three seriously heavyweight actors, and a key role for Ruth Hussey as well. And um, and a whole load of other ensemble players so, that you see pop up in these. I think because so at that time I think um, uh, Catherine Hepburn was actually seen as box office poison. She'd had a great big run of flops, yeah. and so when this film kind of came along, 
I think it was that she was actually but appeared in the Broadway play of it and was quite invested in it. I think mm-hmm. the part had actually been written for her in the play. And I think a lot of people were nervous about casting her yeah, in this particular yeah. role. Hence, we got two A-list male stars where normally you only get one. So we had both mm-hmm. Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, which is um, quite a treat. I love both these actors. I think they're brilliant. And Catherine Hepburn as well. So three of the best there. It's a 1940 film. Um, um, it's essentially, it's an adaptation, as you sort of alluded to there, of Philip Barry's theatrical farce, um, which had starred in the play on Broadway. And, um, I mean, this is a cracking yarn. It's brilliant. It's got... Um, it's based on an actual person, isn't it? It's a Helen Hope Montgomery Scott, yes, um, who was right. a friend of Barry's, and they basically wrote about her. I mean, she must have had quite a life. <laughs> this is what was written about her. I hope, I hope she enjoyed it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so, so in terms of what actually kind of happened, so Carrie, uh, Catherine Hepburn is a, a kind of rich woman who's sort of recently divorced from Carrie Grant. Um, she's looking to get married again and mm. having a kind of big meet up at her house uh, ahead of her planned remarriage. Carrie Grant turns up and a tabloid reporter, although, although he's less of a tabloid reporter, more failed poet, James Stewart, also kind of turns up with Ruth Hussey uh, yeah. to to try and get the scoop on what's going on because the, these are all socialites. These are all people yeah. that are very much in the public eye. That, yeah. So, and Ruth Hussey plays the photographer to yeah. go along with this uh, this gossip writer. Um, but both of them are, yeah, as you said, they're struggling in a job that they don't want to do. They want the, yeah. you know, James Stewart wants to be a poet, and Ruth Hussey's character wants to be an artist. I think it is, or a photographer. I think it's an artist actually. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and uh, you never know yeah. who's going to end up with who, really. <laughs> yeah, it's it's curiously ambiguous in that regard, isn't it? You genuinely don't know who you're supposed to be rooting for. Quite often, no. it's the anxiety of, well, are they going to get together or not? But this one is, who's going to get together? Which is quite a curiosity, because um, at one point, it seems it's leaning towards James Stewart, then it leans back the other way. We won't plot spoil anything, if you haven't seen it, but not that it's really essential. Yes. <laughs> but no. it's, um, it's, it's, you, it's all about the performance yeah. and the dialogue, really, more than anything else. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. I mean, there's a few. And it's got that feeling of a play, isn't it? When you watch it, it is almost. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. And you've got, I mean, the, the thing is, because the, um, the Tracy Lord character, Catherine Hepburn's character, it's, it's curiosity because, um, as you said, the box office poison element. There was also um, comments made by RKO, the studio, that there were less than ideal terms. The public saw Hepburn as bossy and unfeminine, certainly not the womanly ideal for the late 1930s, one of the entries of... In hindsight, it's a beautiful thing. You think back, you just couldn't imagine that now, could you? No, no, and and I couldn't imagine anyone else in the that classic period, and she's probably the first actress that you think of. Yeah, yeah. The bossiness um, is is key in this in this sense isn't it you know she's yeah. kind of dictating the play as it were in some senses she doesn't quite know what she wants or whatever else but you know she's that assertive character and in another film which we may or may not mention bringing up baby where she's playing a similar type of role overall yeah. which is, i mean a different different characteristics similarly characteristics, sparring with uh carrie grant yes with carrie grant yeah it's a similar sort of thing we may get onto that later we'll see but um um, in case we do, we won't say any more on that one. But yeah, I mean, it's an interesting story. Um, good fun. It's it's a good yarn. It is, as you said, a bit longer than normal, but it's still great value, isn't yeah. it? And um, I mean, you've got the we've mentioned the fop kind of characters, the sort of the, 
the comedy foils and you've got um people like ralph bellamy who might pop up in some films we'll talk about he's later all, he's, he's, he's the yeah, much he's, rejected yeah he's <laughs> your, your, your typical films. your typical kind straight of straight man yeah straight man very un normally from colorful, the south or whatever normally yeah. from the south a nice affable guy but very a, a bit yeah, of a simpleton in one sense. Yeah. Naive, yeah, yeah. And you've got characters like that. In this case, you've got an interesting one. We talk about class as well in this genre in general. And that play, that underplays definitely in this film because you've got the whole thing of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the other character that she's, um, potentially betrothed to, who's, um, essentially working class roots. And yeah. you've got this whole element of, oh, yeah, they play off on that quite blatantly as well don't they they kind of bring it to the fore as a subject and um he's seen as an aspiring guy who's made his way up and is a different a different character to the other characters in this who are probably the more entertaining the more lovable and again you've got this straight man there's no 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 real redeeming features for the audience to tie into which avoids the possibility of you trying to root for him so you're rooting for these two which is interesting because they're the well, one of them is not upper class; the other one is, um, I suppose you could say. But um, yeah, interesting it's, it's, story. It's like. another. It's kind of the, the subgenre within screwball comedies would be that comedy of remarriage, of which there are numerous, lot of yes. examples. A lot of Cary Grant films, so His Girl Friday, <laughs> Bringing Up Baby. Um, there's also things like It Happened One Night and The Awful Truth, um, which have this kind of whole comedy of of remarriage, which was a a direct reaction to the AIDS code. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's strange. So, so, so Catherine Hepburn, she actually originally wanted Clark Gable to play Cary Grant's role with Spencer Tracy playing Jimmy Stewart's, but they had other commitments. Um, Cary Grant eventually agreed on, com- on the condition that he got top billing and he got quite a big fee, which he donated entirely to the, uh, the British War Relief Society. Um, it would have been interesting. So George Cooker, the director, I mean, he'd also done uh, My Fair Lady, um, Adam's Rib, Gaslight, A Star Is Born. He'd also been one of the many directors on uh, Gone with the Wind. Yes. And he didn't really get on very well with Clark Gable. So I think that would have been pretty much non-starter in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, Jimmy Stewart was, I mean, he was nominated for a number of uh, Oscars. Jimmy Stewart actually won. He was a very nervous man on, on set, I think, because he had quite a lot of dialogue that he wasn't completely comfortable with, not his normal quips, particularly the kind of the poetry recital. It, on the day that he was actually filming that, just so happened that Noel Coward was on set, as, as you'd expect from a film yeah. made in 1940, oh, and he kind of coached him through it and coaxed him through it. And yeah, I don't think Jimmy Stewart expected to win a uh, win an Oscar. In fact, he wasn't actually looking to turn up to the uh, ceremony on the night. But he um, he kind of I think he was told that he, it would be in his worth worthwhile to go along. So he he came along and he uh, and he won. I think, but he always saw it as not his Oscar. He should have won the year before for another screwball comedy, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And he'd actually thought that Henry Fonda and Grapes of Wrath should have won, but never mind. He won. And I think it won a couple of other Oscars as well. Yeah. And big, big box office smash. I mean, the play at the time was still out and that was still making a lot of money. So I think they kind of have staggered release dates around when the play was touring around so that they could sort of maximize the, maximize the money from it. Yeah. And, um, I mean, it has to be said as well that, um, this sort of, um, this theme of, um, 
well, I was going to say, with, well, actually, I'll, I'll just spin on to talking about, um, it was remade as well, because, um, it's, it's high society, success. isn't it? Yeah. As high society, yeah. It was an award-winning screenplay, matched the comedy with social commentary. And then in 1956, yeah, the play, I suppose you could say, or the film, if, if yes. you want to call it that, was remade with additional musical numbers, um, into high society, as you said, with Sinatra and Bing Crosby in the male roles. Um, and that's, um, that's not a bad film, but I'm, I'm more of, I know you love musicals, Phil. Um, we'll never be doing <laughs> so you musicals, might disagree. ever. <laughs> or will we? I just can't be getting on with that, sorry. <laughs> okay, well, I might, who knows, we might still do it. I might just um, get yeah. you to sit in and, and groan in the background as we get another guest in or something yeah. like that. Who knows, yeah, something like that. But no, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that sums it up really. In terms of um, the film, I think, um, lots of recurring themes are in there. It's a typical example of the genre. And I think it's great, great fun. It's, and ultimately, you get two hours of watching brilliant actors wind each other up with brilliant dialogue. <laughs> yeah, you can't go wrong. Yeah, it really is great, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, well. So we're back to um, you for number four. Indeed, yeah, straight back at me. I feel playing an aggressive game here, Phil. Um, so at number four, I've gone for a, a film I've always loved. I've seen it a long time ago. I think I did see this at the big screen first time. It's The Awful Truth from 1937, which um, maybe isn't quite as famous as the likes of the Philadelphia story, but it is still pretty well known. And it is, you're, you're coming in at your usual 91 minutes here, back back on track in the uh, tight stakes. Uh, black and white, do- directed by Leo McCary, also produced by him and Everett Riskin, screenplay by Vigna Delmar, from a play, here we go again with the play conversions, um, by Arthur Richman. Um, it's filmed by Joseph Walker. And the cast of this one is Irene Dunn. Cary Grant, Grant again. <laughs> I, I predict that Cary Grant is going to be in all of your films, except maybe one. <laughs> you might be right. Who knows? Um, it also stars the just recently aforementioned Ralph Bellamy. Ralph Bellamy, Bellamy yeah, again course. playing that character. Yeah, and um, you've got, again, you've got this typical ensemble of people you probably wouldn't know by name, but who pop up often in these sort of films. Um, the director, McCary, got an Oscar for um, for this film. He also got nominations for Best Picture for the two producers, for Screenplay, for Actress, which is Irene Dunn, of course, for Ralph Bellamy as an actor in a support role, and for Al Clark with the editing. Nothing for Kerry Grant, though. Shocking, shocking indeed. It, I mean, so, I mean the, the, the plot of this, you could literally do in a few words. It's like, Kerry Grant and Irene Dunn divorce. Then yeah. she finds somebody else and he just hangs around, getting on, yeah. you know, winding up her new boyfriend um, <laughs> until they eventually get together again at the end. And that's it. Yeah. <laughs> no spoiler. New boyfriend. Anyway. The new boyfriend of Ralph Bellamy, yeah. Ralph Bellamy, who's and it's brilliant. It's another one, all about but... yeah, all about great actors yeah. sparring off each other, backwards and forwards. It's a fantastic film. This was was very close to getting my top five too. Yeah, and it also features um, a great role for a dog as well. This film, which is mm. which is great, isn't it? Mr. Smith, isn't it? I think he's called. Yes. Um, it's actually been a while since I've seen this film, but I've always loved it. I've seen it a number of times. There's a bit um, of the kind of the slapstick element that can also come into uh, into screwball comedies. is very, very kind of present in in that in that sequence. Yeah. That's something that, for, to my take, my modern tastes hasn't aged quite as well as mm. perhaps some of the other things like the dialogue and everything yeah. else. Some of the slapstick stuff I, I I struggle with in 2021. It just seems a bit 
bizarre and surreal and weird. But I mean, in this case, it works. In, in other yeah. cases, it doesn't work quite so well. One thing, I, one thing I would sort of talk, talk about, I don't think we really touched on this subject particularly, is improvisation in films, which could be across any genres. Um, I think it's quite typically often happens with comedy because obviously yeah. you know, you're, you're seeing what works as you're, as you're doing it. I think when you're delivering lines, that's when you can you can really get a feel and smell out the sort of you know the dialogue. And in this film, um, if I refer to my lovely tome that is one thousand and movies you must see before you die, a bit dramatic. Um, it says in there for the entry on the awful truth, which is listed. It says the legend of Leo McCary's The Awful Truth is that it was largely improvised from day to oh, day. I didn't know that. I didn't realise yeah. that at all. Yeah, it seems it says, very snappy. It's almost like they'd. It had been kind of really scripted down to yeah, the kind of t- exactly. tiniest detail. Yeah, when I read this, I was surprised because I, I thought the same as you, yeah. And it says, um, it goes on to say, this legend is perfectly in tune with the ethos of the film itself, in which spontaneity, playfulness, the ability to laugh at one's own act, as well as to see it with the eye of the person who is seeing right through you at the same moment, are so central to its glorious, warm sense of humour, as well as its exploration of how to make marriage work, and it says, but the script structure, however, it was arrived at, is satisfying. It starts with a rupture. Jerry, played by Cary Grant, and Lucy, which is Irene Dunn's character, believing that they have caught each other in infidelities, lies, and worst of all, a lack of trust, decide to divorce. It takes half the film covering Lucy's flirtation with Dan, which is the Ralph Bellamy yeah. character, for her to realise that she still loves Jerry. And so the story goes on. But yeah, the improvisation on that is quite interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, I just, I've never struck, very surprised. I, I could never imagine Cary Grant improvising. I'm not sure why. But hmm. I mean, it's something that still happens a lot. I mean, hmm. my, to me, the greatest comedy ever, which we may do at some point, but, but to, you know, is this is Spiral Tap and that's nearly all improvised, you know. Yeah, indeed. So, yeah. yeah, it's something that obviously still happens a lot. Yeah, you just simply have to turn it up to 11, don't you? You just have to, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, don't get me started on Spinal Tap quotes because I'll be <laughs> here for hours. But yeah. <laughs> well, I think for once we can forgive a potential plot spoiler on our, um, on our yeah. revelations of top fives here. Yeah. So, um, but we might, it depends when we put it in, you know, who knows? People might have forgotten. Other people may not be listening to this episode and exactly. might listen to later ones. Who knows? Who knows? But anyway, yes. So the awful truth is my number four and it sits Great proudly film. in there. I love it. I love it. It was probably yeah. my seven or eight or something like that. Yeah. I'd say. Yeah. Indeed. Right. Well, the final part for part one, of course, is to go through our number threes. Um, yes. So back to you, Phil. So for my number three, I have gone for the 1936 film Libeled Lady. Mm. This is another one. That I, well, I think the, sort of the, the five and four I really genuinely enjoyed. My top three, I think, were kind of three that I think were just a bit of a class apart of quite a lot of the other films. So this is uh, wealthy Myrna Loy is falsely accused of breaking up a marriage by newspaper editor Spencer Tracy. So he runs this scandalous broadsheet tabloid uh, of where she's had some supposed affair that she's had. um, And he realises he's going to be sued. And so his response to that is thinking, well, if we get sued, we could go out of business. So he uh, employs ladies man William Powell to (laughs) go over to England and sort of try and chat up Myrna Loy and actually kind of get close to her uh, in order that he could engineer a situation in which the 
revelations that are on the front page of the newspaper could actually be true. I've gone all over. I've even explained this very well at all. No, no, no I don't like it. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> People could check it out. Ba- yeah, sort of, exactly. So, so I mean, and so what Spencer Tracy does is he marries his own fiance, Jean Harlow, to ladies' man William Powell, so that he's a married man when he meets Merlinoy. So that yeah, this supposed <laughs> infidelity. <laughs> would then be true and he can't be sued for it and then William Powell has to engineer such situations with Merlin Loy to uh, classic screwball plot contrivances and it would be no surprise to anyone that they actually fall in love but unfortunately he's already married to Jean Harlow Spencer Spencer Tracy's fiance but she also starts falling in love with him because he gives her a lot more attention than her husband is who fiance is who's all bit working oh god i'm all over the place you, you, you get it you understand it it's the great point is it's 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 nice and uh we're screwballed up isn't it it's nice it is very and very very much tangled, and just but watching it's them. almost stressful isn't it watching these entanglements finally occur and this kind of plot resolution it can this get quite one, stressful. you're actually never quite sure how it is going to be resolved um and it's yeah I, I, it's brilliant. It's a really good snappy dialogue. Um, it's really, I mean, there's some sort of away from a lot of obviously the films of this time were all filmed on sound stages. It's quite a lot of outside areas as they travel around. He tries to get in with her dad, played by Walter Connolly, who's basically playing exactly the same part that he plays in It Happened One Night. Um, the millionaire father, again, obviously these people are all socialites who everybody knows about, hence wanting to be on the front page of the newspaper. Um, it's, it's just great fun. So um, at that time, Jean Harlow and uh, William Powell, they were actually an off-screen couple and Harlow wanted Lloyd's role so that their characters would end up together. Um, MGM turned this down, but she got top billing and a wedding scene with Powell and uh, Powell and Lloyd. Can you guess how many films they've starred in together? Bearing in mind, um, this was their second of the year. Um, oh, blimey. Are we talking uh, sort of seven or eight, nine, something like 14. that? Fourteen. <laughs> Fourteen. Oh, yes. So this was nominated for 1936 Best Picture, uh, but lost to the great Ziegfeld, which also starred Powell and Loy. <laughs> Roof. Yes. Um, well, so, Phil, um, I've, I've got to say, I, this, I've got to confess, this is another one I haven't seen. You've, oh, you you've, by catching now. up, you've overtaken. Oh, yeah. You've seen stuff I haven't seen now. The Life of Lady, I'm looking forward to seeing that one as well. Yeah, I mean, Definitely. everyone in this is great. Spencer Tracy's particularly great. Apparently yeah. him and Lloyd were having an affair while they were filming this. There's real tension between a lot of the characters. Jean Harlow, a.k.a. the blonde bombshell. Unfortunately, yeah. she died the, the following year of kidney failure while filming Saratoga. Um William Powell has a bit of a tragic life story when you kind of look at it. He married actresses who then died young. Yeah. <laughs> on more than ideal. one occasion, which which we'll probably be going into again soon. Um but it, it's, it's it's not real, you, it's me. <laughs> yes. It's a real, real joy to watch. I mean, um can't say enough good things about it. There's a lot it's yeah. it's one of these ones, it's got less of the crazy although you probably didn't pick this up from my incredibly poor expert uh, sort of description it's got less of the kind of farcical elements and it's a bit more of a traditional rom-com but with a lot of jazzy dialogue put in and, yeah. and some terrific performances 
Yeah, it's great. I love Spencer Tracy. I haven't got any of his films in this top five of mine, but um, of course, we should mention it. He's not really Ross. known so much for his comedies, is he? Not, not so much, no. He's More done a few. Romantic leads, maybe, but yeah. not, not comedy side of things. I mean, he, he of course, famously was a long-term uh, relationship with Catherine Hepburn. Hepburn, um, yeah. And they made a number of films together, including screwball comedies. But, yeah. Um, but mainly outside of this category, there were films like Pat and Mike, which is very good, which I think is from the early 50s. Um, you've got Adam's Rip. You've got The Woman of the Year. These are all good films. So I won't yeah. mention a couple of these as being her choices. Um, I think she said The Woman of the Year is is one of her favourites. In terms of The Battle of the Sexes. I haven't element, seen that it's, one. Okay. It's properly up there, yeah. I can't remember which year that is, whether it would have qualified. But, um, but yeah, they, they made a lot of films together. And Spencer Tracy is um, is very good in, in that. I'm sure he's very good in this. He's, he's a brilliant actor. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so I can't say any more because I haven't seen the film, but um, yeah. it's curious. It's good. Directed by Jack Conway, who I'm not actually hmm. aware of anything else that he's done. Oh, right. Okay. Because a lot of yeah. these films you can kind of, you can go through. There are several directors that you, you know are going to come up again and again. Frank Capra, Howard Hawks, Preston Sturgis. Yeah. Um, George Cuba yeah, I mean, again. Yeah, but. Yeah, Conway's not so well known. He's not a. Very obvious, familiar name. It's interesting that you get sometimes you get some very good films by by directors who who rarely make much and you know just one or two things, and then uh, you know that. But he's not as famous as he probably should be for having made a good film. But there we go. Yeah. Wonder wonder why that is, but who knows? Who knows? Okay, yeah. Right, over to your good self for number three. Yeah, so back to me, and um, you've predicted that I'm going to have. Four out of five Kerry Grant films. Well, yeah. you're still on track, Mr. Newman, because next up on my list is 1938's Bringing Up Baby, another classic oh, of the genre. Go. Now, this is... this is. It didn't make my film. list, but that was probably six or seven for me. Yeah. What I will say is I did have this at number two, and I've dropped it down one, but it's very interchangeable. My top three are in general. Yeah, but I do, think, I do think this sits right at number three. I mean, that is praise indeed because there's a lot of good films in this genre so bringing up baby is as i said 1938 film it's kerry grant it's Catherine hepburn again as well and this film is a classic it's perhaps to quote howard barry hawks, norman it? it's, it's howard hawks who i love yeah. I've, I've seen a season of his films at the um harbour lights picture house in southampton when i was a film student um i love them all i, I really love hawks stuff him and wilder people of that era um just brilliant on a different level in Barry Norman's 100 Best Films of the Century book, published quite a few years ago now, of which I have a copy to hand, he's, his entry says, perhaps the highest compliment that I can pay to bringing up baby is that if P.G. Woodhouse had been born an American, he might have written it. Like Woodhouse, the film creates a world of its own, one just recognisable to those of us who live in the other world, but far more enchanting and carefree than ours. For it starts... Uh, sorry, for a start, it's inhabited by Catherine Hepburn, the kind of gloriously eccentric, ravishingly beautiful heiress that every man would cheerfully leave home for. Then, too, there's any world's most handsome paleontologist, um, <laughs> Kerry, Kerry Grant. Not necessarily the obvious role for him, a, a paleontologist. The other elements no. make it so. Um, who Barry Norman says... Um, whose life Hepburn throws into lunatic turmoil. She is mad in this film, isn't she? She's <laughs> yeah. next level. I mean, yeah, she yeah, I just mean, doesn't care. 
it's Again, great. She's I mean, a rich. She's a rich person, isn't it? That has more more uh, money than sense. Let's be honest. Yeah, that's right. And she just spins a web of chaos around. Just her. does whatever this, this she expression. wants, whenever she wants, with no I mean, regard for what, what her exactly, consequences. Exactly. I mean, the, the expression lunatic turmoil, maybe not exactly how I would have worded it, but I think it sums it up nicely. The fact that the next line of his book says, plus, of course, there's a leopard, Hepburn's pet, and the baby of the title. Yeah, exactly. Which, uh, sums up more. I mean, although, to be fair, that is actually her, no doubt, equally mad brother, who we never get to see, I don't think, um, who sent the pet over. Um, there, there's a plot contrivance. I won't, I won't yeah. bore you with details, but um, she ends up with the, with the leopard and uh, yeah. there's some confusion so, and chaos. So Cary Grant is basically, he's <laughs> try, he is after a donation for his museum, yeah. isn't he? Yep. He's um, completing a brontosaurus, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, well, he, he, want, and he wants to secure a $1 million do- donation for his museum. And that yeah. kind of brings him into the orbit of Catherine Hepburn. He also has his, uh, what's the name of the bone? There's something clavicle? That keeps coming uh, up and getting, getting, getting. Yeah, they get keep, maximum they, hilarity from. Yes, um, I it's, can't remember what it's, it's called. It's something, a, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's like an in, introverted clavicle, clavicle or, something or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a dog, by the way, as well, which of course there is also in the awful truth. Um, so Kerry Grant's again paired with um, an animal. They say never work with animals, but um, you know you've got a bloody leopard in this one as well yeah but um yeah, but that's a uh, complete um, odds with Cary Grant who is the very suave debonair I mean has anyone in the history of the world looked better in a suit than Cary Grant Probably exactly and exactly. so to have him confronted by animals and lunatic turmoil uh Catherine Hepburn it's just it, it's watching them bounce off each other it's hilarious yeah and we mentioned some like it hot of course famously in that film Tony Curtis impersonates Cary Grant as as the actor yeah. um his character impersonates Cary Grant uh to to put on the pretense of being an aloof kind of um debonair toff type character but slightly slightly gawky and in fact Barry Norman's description of Cary Grant's character in Bringing Up Baby is slightly querulous slightly gawky performance that he was to become um was to become his trademark is as immaculate as to his script and come to that the direction of howard hawks so this gawkiness that's what i think tony curtis particularly taps into yeah. it's probably this performance in particular where he's yes he's he's a debonair guy and he looks good in whatever he wears and all that in stuff. a lot of his here films, he's gawky he, isn't he, it? yeah in a lot of Cary grant films he always seems very self-insured and in control but Hmm. Definitely not in, in this. this he's just completely has no idea how to how to kind of react or exactly he, Catherine Hepburn. you know all sorts of stuff happens he's taken away randomly out, out out from his his physically geographically away from where he's supposed to be yes. he's dragged along he's he's you know his clothes are taken away and getting clean so he's stuck in this house he's got he ends up having to wear a sort of like a over elaborately ornate very feminine uh woman's nightgown you know there is this there is this kind of effeminacy and slightly campness element to the performance as well isn't there which is obviously deliberate for the for the role he's this kind of put upon guy and you know he's got these to add comedy value to it he throws in those traits which um i think adds an extra element to it which is quite funny um it just plays it for laughs he's not not afraid to make fun of himself i think in this role and he does it pretty well it's, it's great laugh, great laugh. And Brilliant. um 
I just wonder if there's anything else worth mentioning here. I mean, in terms of the cast, you've got Hepburn and Grant, Charles Ruggles, May Robson, Walter Catlett, Fritz Feld, Barry Fitzgerald. Again, not necessarily f- familiar names, but they all play their... But you reckon that if you've watched a lot of these films, you, exactly. they chew they the scenery in a lot of them, don't they? Yeah. And they're, they're, you get the sort of like the, um, the slightly amusing, easily, easily confused in dialogue terms, older character that comes yeah. in, in this case... The aunt, who apparently this leopard's intended for originally, um, I mean, she's got a companion or whoever it is that's, that's there, this guy, and he's the guy who kind of, you know, is one of those people that will repeat the line back, which is ridiculous, and start getting encouraged by the line and start talking about it and then realise, hang on, hang on, what, what? You know, that, that typical contrite, um, that sort of contrivance that you get in yes. comedy, you know, where people start accepting what's been said. They go, whoa, whoa, hang on. Um, he's one of those guys. And the aunt as well, you always get, a dominant older yes. figure, don't you? Um, it happened one night. It's the father. But they're of the very girl, subservient the too. Yeah. And, yeah. It's all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, um, it's great. I really love it. 102 minutes, by the way, in terms of we're going on to the yeah. subject of running times again. So not, not too long. And, um, great along. yeah, cracks it on at a fair old pace. Right. So, I think it's time to get another beer. It is. Yeah. And we're cracking along at a fair old pace tonight. So, but. Yes, indeed. We do need to stay refueled, don't we? So <laughs> it is time for a quick break, and whereupon we shall return with our number twos and number ones on our list of top five. Stay tuned. Well, we are suitably re-lubricated, Phil, aren't we? We are. Um, what are you on? Well, I have now um, indulged myself to the tune of a little Dorado, little Dorado, so little Dorado, I presume that means, from the um, Penrose Brewery. Uh, it's a hazy, yeah, ha- hazy session IPA. Yeah, nice. Oh, Pretty good. Nice. Yeah, nice little tin as well. Do like the craft beer artwork as well. One of my yeah. little, uh, special uh, guilty pleasures. Anyway, yes, what about yourself? I'm on the Camden Town Brewery, Love Hate, Marmite oh. Ale. Um it's very marmite and I like marmite, <laughs> and it's ale. I mean, all they need to do is invent kebab ale, and, I, and I've got everything I need, quite frankly. What's not to like about marmite? Just ask 50% of the audience. Will... Yeah, I know. Well, that's why it's called love, hate, or hate, love. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Uh, it's, uh, if you like marmite and you like <laughs> ale, you'll like it. It's great. It's a sort of dark beer with a marmite aftertaste. As Brilliant. I'm sure you Lovely. Lovely. Well, having a, having a small tin of the hazy pale IPA, I've also got myself a chocolate stout for later. Details to follow. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Um, just to finish off the, uh, the evening in style. Um, the winters are drawing in. Bill, yeah, we've exactly. got to have something warmer. It's beer drinking weather. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. As right, opposed then, to okay. summer where it's beer garden weather. <laughs> We're going to come to our, talk, our top twos in a moment. But just first of all, a bit of notice board stuff. Um, if you are listening and you like the show and you want to contribute something, you can text us or you can message us, I should say, by tweeting our Twitter account, which is Phil. At Film5s1. So that's F-I-L-M-F-I-V-E-S-1, as in the number one. Um, and then we also have the uh, Facebook page, Film Fives. Brilliant. Feel free to yeah. come follow and yeah, spam us with anything you want. Yeah. So if after hearing this, you wanted to give us your fives, you can indeed just send us a message. Uh, we can read it out on the next episode. Just uh, 
as a quick follow-up uh, comment before we get on to whatever the new subject is for that week or uh, for that month. Um, also, we might see if we can make it more interactive in terms of Twitter with potentially having uh, information go out in advance. So stay tuned to the Twitter account. I think as well. we're going to, it's going to be quite a lot more yeah. the next one we're going to do. I can see quite. Yes, a lot. I think so. We, we shall we reveal? Well, we'll reveal it at the end. Shall yeah, we? yeah, yeah. It's yes. the big one. <laughs> can you guess for folks? me anyway guess? <laughs> phil is very enthusiastic it's not anything to do with spinal tap and on that basis no. can you guess we'll, we'll find out yeah okay well anyway let's get on to our twos and ones then so at number two number two i have so gone for <laughs> number two my man godfrey oh this uh-huh. is brilliant i love this film it, it's yeah, uh film. william powell again um playing fairly similar character to what he did in Lightboard Lady. So this is a 1936 film directed by Gregory Gregory LaCarva, who's a former animator who was freelance, who did didn't really get on with the whole studio system. Um so a scatterbrained socialite, where have we heard this before, played by Carol Lombard, hires a vagrant, played by William Powell, as a family butler. However, there is more to Godfrey than meets the eye. And, yeah, it's, it's just wonderful. So, so it's the based, fun in shoes. Yeah, based on the 1935 novel by Eric S. Hatch. And um, the Carver, the director, who's kind of considered the, the number one comedy director at that time, he would only sign on if Universal borrowed William Powell from MGM. Obviously, we had the studio system in place at that time. Powell would only take the part of his ex-wife, Carol Lombard, played Irene. So, where we mentioned earlier, William Powell and his ex, his ex-wife, Jean Harlow, died tragically. Uh, a few years after this, Carol Lombard died tragically in a plane crash uh, follow, in, following return from a, a a war bond tour but yeah this is just one of those films that they they still kind of make it a kind of quite a lot sort of to this day where it's sort of different worlds colliding in a comedy so he's he's yeah. he's the butler that is is a homeless person although you find out later there's a lot more going on and he's actually a very educated well-schooled guy with a lot of connections um, who is basically plays a sort of Jeeves character and looks after um, Carol Lombard's character and she falls in love with him and he initially spurns her as being younger, et cetera, et cetera. But you know it's only all heading in one direction. Yeah. And yeah, again, there are farcical elements uh, with the, this, with her family who are all absolute lunatics. I mean, we just spoke about. Catherine Hepburn in bringing out baby the whole of um Kath- Carol Lombard's family in this film old what yeah what you would call as yeah aristocratic lunatics <laughs> which all all helps doesn't it yeah i mean the idea of quirky eccentric characters of of the upper classes seems to permeate all sorts of classic hollywood films plays throughout the eras actually including going back to I mean Hugh way. Grant still does it now <laughs> yeah you know, you've had it in Mrs. Malaprop in The Rivals, you know, plays yeah. from 150 years ago, whatever it is. You know, there's loads of those things. And, yeah, I mean, but but it works well. I think it works well. This film's great. Yeah, it didn't quite make my top five, but I do really like it. It has been a while since I've seen it. Maybe I need to refresh, in fact, on that one. And what it did do, um, it got loads of Oscar nominations. Gregory the Carver, director. Got, Eric Hatch. It was a f- 
Yeah, it was the first year that supporting categories were introduced, wasn't it, 19? Yeah, that's right. And and Riskin, one of the the producers, oh, sorry, one of the writers, um, I think pops up on one of the other films we mentioned earlier. Was it Philadelphia Story? I can't remember. Um, But William Powell for actor. Um, You've also got Misha Oya, I think it's pronounced as actor in a support role. Carol Lombard for actress. Alice Brady for actress in a supporting role. So lots of acting noms. And it didn't win any Oscars at all. Yeah. For nearly all of them. The reviews were mostly good. So um, if you go, it's quite interesting. If you go back and look at the reviews from that time, Graham mm. Green, the novelist, was still a journalist. And he said it was acutely funny for three quarters of its way. And he noted that the social conscience was a little confused and he wished for a more dignified exit. And there's a real yeah. kind of class struggle yeah. clash in this film I think that's the sort of thing that made it appeal to me and I why I really loved it quite so much yeah it, it's 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 just beautiful it's a joy to watch I wonder if the fact that it didn't win any of the Oscars it didn't help its profile because to me in my mind's eye it doesn't quite have the same level of fame as the likes of the Philadelphia story and bringing out baby and it happened one night right. and films like that it, it doesn't seem well, to have the same William Powell and Carol Lombard I don't think I were here we are, 85 years on. I don't think they're remembered in quite as strong terms. No. As and, and the director as well. Catherine you, you mentioned him. Hepburn and Cary Grant. Yeah. Yeah, I think, the I Carver, think yeah. Yeah, I mean, it says, um, going back to the 1001 films you should see, it's in there as well, I should uh, hasten to add, so you'll be pleased to know. Um, their entry says, as one of the masters of sophisticated salon comedies, interesting expression I've not heard okay, before. Okay, I've not heard of that one. Yeah. I don't know if it just means screwball or, or kind of class comedies. I don't know. Anyway, it says Gregory LaCarver might not have had the most aching social consciousness in 1930s Hollywood, but he had a knack for satire with a social and political edge that is clearly visible in films such as Gabriel Over the White House, 1933. She Married Her Boss, 1935, and especially My Man Goffrey. His most memorable work, made at the end of the um, Depression era, yeah, is screwball classic deals with poor bum Godfrey uh, being hired as a butler as part of high society party game, etc. You could say shades of um, trading places here, couldn't it's you? And, very, yeah. uh, and, I think and trading also places Pygmalion, borrows quite you know, a this, lot from this film. Yeah. Pygmalion as well, this kind of playing with yeah. the lower classes type scenario, it comes comes up again and again. Um, so, But LaCarva, you know, he's not really famous famous, he's not is really, he? Uh, yeah, I'd never heard of him before. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this is his most famous film, and as I said, it doesn't quite fit into the the top level of famed screwball yeah. comedies suggests that um, it's a bit of a shame and probably a little bit of an injustice based on this yeah. film. Anyway, I haven't seen those others. That are no, I think but, I've, um, I've heard that um, the Carver and Powell, there's quite a lot of tension on set and the Carver and Powell, they kind of clashed oh, quite right. a lot, um, but they settled their differences usually over a bottle of scotch. This was yeah. 1936 after all. Whereas for Carol Lombard, and I'd love to see outtakes of this. I don't think they actually exist. Um, when things were getting a bit difficult, she would just insert lots of four-letter words into the dialogue, and everyone would just roll around laughing. But it, I think it made the film even shooting of the film even more difficult. You just can't <laughs> imagine it, can, can you? Really, <laughs> I'd love to see that. That's brilliant. I do like that. That's great. Disruptive. But yeah, it, it, was, it was a massive hit for the studio. It earned a lot of money. Um, it was remade in 1957 with uh, David Niven. Not as well. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Niven's great in in the right roles, but he's um 
you know, I mean, it's like a matter of life. David Lewis is a bit of a cad, isn't he? Whereas in, you, for, yeah. the, for the Godfrey character, you, it's a, he's a Jeeves character. You want someone that, yeah. at his heart, is lovely and just pretends yeah. to be a bit nasty and a bit evil, you know. He sort of yeah. puts this sort of shield up. Yeah, I think I think that's fair to say, isn't it? Actually, yeah, it's it's got. He wouldn't have been ideal for the role at the time, and obviously, you know, later did it to less effect later on down the line. But yeah, he's. Uh, by the way, if you, just incidentally, while we're on the subject, quick digression: Have you read his biographies, David Niven? No, they're, they're very name droppy and anecdotal, but they are very yeah. funny. And one of the characters, I can imagine they are. Yeah, yeah. There's this guy he knew who is, I think, an old school chum who's not actually famous, but he was a very, very larger than life character. Um, and there's loads of stories about him in it, amongst other things. And, uh, it's very funny. In fact, there's two biographies, two biographies. He did the Moons of Balloon and then something about the horses. Um, I can't remember the title now, but, um, they're worth checking out if you can find them. I think they get reprinted from time to time. And okay. readily available. Yeah. Anyway, there we go. I've so watched a David Niven film for ages. I should, yeah. There's some good ones out there. Yeah, there are, there are some good ones. Yeah. He can tell a story as well, I have to say that, but he's, he's a good actor. A matter of we life might, we might even be mentioning him in, in our next episode. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. That's a tenuous teaser. That one is how I would describe that one. Yeah. Very tenuous. Yeah. Let's just say it isn't top five David Niven films. Just to no. clarify. But I think you guessed that from the word tenuous. But anyway, there we go. Um, yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I need to see it again, actually, that film, My Man Godfrey, because I think it's a, it is a classic. It's a little bit of an unsung. Um, I think it, it, it was a genuine classic. joy yeah. from start mm. to finish. And you know what's yeah. going to happen. I mean, the same, I mean, we spoke about Wodehouse earlier. It's very much a sort of when you, if you think back to watching Jeeves and Worcester with um, Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and you just watch all yeah. the scrapes that would happen and Stephen Fry always had everything organised. It's, it's a, it, it, it sort of scratches that very same itch, if you know what I mean. It's, it's a similar kind of thing. It feels very much of that. That yeah, area. It's yeah. just, in fact, we, it's we mentioned really earlier, didn't we? Yeah, 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 we're just saying. And, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's great. By the way, Jeeves and Worcester, if you've not seen the, the series or indeed read the books, you should do so. I've read some of the books. I've seen all of the series. It's great. Yeah. Stuff. Really good. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, I, that's great. I think we can, we can move on to, uh, my number two. Unless you've got any more to add to your. No, uh, that's great. Yeah. Is your man Godfrey's my man Godfrey as well, even though I didn't have my top five. Right. Number two. Now I mentioned about the order with bringing up baby. I've swapped number two and number three rounds after a very tough reckoning. And so I keep that in mind. I could equally have argued really two and one could have been in the same boat here. Really. I suspect and I sincerely hope you have this somewhere in your top two, which means at number one, I don't know if you have or not. Uh, we're going to find has, out shortly. Has, has your number two got Cary Grant? It hasn't, no. In that case, it's very probably my number one. Okay. Well, we'll find out if it's your number one in about 10 seconds. Okay. After I've revealed my number two as being the absolute seminal classic of Hollywood, It Happened One Night. Yeah, it's my number one. <laughs> I thought it might be. Fantastic. This, this is the this film is... that kind of kick-started the whole genre, really, isn't it? It was a couple of months before The Hayes yeah. Code. And I'm quite sure that quite a lot of The Hayes Code was in reaction to some of this film as well. Yeah, because the period of the Scribble comedies is, what, is it 30, 
especially 33 or 34. 34 to 42, yeah. 42. And this is a 1934 film. So as we said, there was a few precursor kind of dry run type films. And this was one of, not only is it a a classic of the screwball genre, it's a classic in general. This is properly, properly good. You've got two. When I started watching the kind of screwball comedies, this was the first one that I watched. Hmm. And I, I was blown away, really. And I thought, oh, I hope they're all as good as this. And they weren't. But a lot of the other ones were very, very good indeed. <laughs> but yeah, this, this is the top one for me. This, this has got so many good features to it. First of all, you've got absolute heavyweight talent. You've got, um, not the Carl, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn aunts, but here you've got Clark Gable making yeah. his first appearance He's on our own. Um, little in this. And you've got Claudette Kohlberg, who's, who's perfect in this role, I think. She, as, yeah. um, as the sort of like the, as the female That's lead, Colbert, sorry, not Colbert. I don't know why I said that. Yeah. Claudette Colbert. Yeah. She's um, another one that kind of time's forgotten a little bit. She just doesn't really get mentioned quite so much anymore. Yeah. She's, she's a heavyweight but actress. She's in incredible the, in this film. She's well known, but I don't think she's, I don't think her well knownness has endured quite as much as others. Like, for example, Catherine Hepburn. Hepburn but she's yeah. brilliant. She's got the coquettishness. She's quite small and physically. Oh, she's got the mouth. Her, I mean, but she's got the mouth, and that's the yeah. best thing about this. It's she's great. definitely got the lip. Yeah. You've got you've got Clark Gable, of course, is probably most famous for Gone with the Wind, which came later. But um, in terms of um, you know, in terms of he's got that roguish charm. He's got that smile. He's got that real man's man thing about him, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. He's very muscular. He's quite an athletic build. He's got a cheeky, kind of knowing look about him. He's got an answer to everything. Yeah, An answer to everything. Always seems to be in control. Exactly. Which is going to really wind up the female lead in a film, uh, or the female lead character in a film, um, which happens here, of course. It's it's perfect. It's a perfect match. You've got... um, in terms of the talent, you've got director so it's Frank, Frank Capra. Capra. We haven't really yeah. spoken about him much. Yeah, he's not done, enough. Almost, have we? he's done a lot of uh, these kind of films. So I'm just briefly looking at, looking at my notes here. Well, you've got Mr. Deeds as one of them, isn't Mr. it? Which Deeds. is which is a great film. It came very close to my top five. Um, yeah, we've which got is um, from Meet He did another one with Cary Grant, um, Arsenic Old Lace, which I didn't really get on with. I thought that was just a bit too farcical for me. Oh. I, I thought you might like that. A lot of people yeah. really like that. It's yeah. tonally all over the place. You've got evil characters. You've got absolute fast characters. You've got a love story. You've got old lady poisoners. And it just, it just seems so uneven to me. I couldn't really get on with it. It was with a certain film, you, you kind of, you kind of, when you watch a film, you kind of go into that world and this world just pulled me out of it. Just because yeah. things would happen that just didn't seem that they should be happening. In okay, so it's a bit a step too far yeah, on yeah. Cary Grant Avenue. Yeah. Okay, but but going back to what happened one night. So interestingly, here you've got Frank Capra not only directed but he co-produced it with Harry Cohn. Now Harry yeah. Cohn, that's C O H N. He was a bit of a. He's a, he's a gangster, basically, wasn't he? <laughs> he he is a formidable figure. Most of the studio heads, which well maybe not the owners, but the what they called the heads of production who were basically running the joint. They were the, the CEOs of the company, effectively. Um, he was working for Columbia and he was a bastard. He was a, a proper tyrant. He was uncompromising. He was, he was threatening. He was, um, so, he, he was daunting. Claudette Colbert, she, she was up for an Oscar for this and she didn't think she'd win. 
So she yeah. did, she basically agreed to go on holiday on the same night of the Oscars. <laughs> um, she, and she was got on her train and was sat down and ready to go off on holiday. And yeah, on comes Cone. And he basically dragged her off the train by her hair and forced her <laughs> to the Oscars, where she actually did win the Oscar, I think. Yeah. Yeah, this, this is insanity, what you've just said. Yeah. You Could you imagine, like, a, student, like, so a producer levels, now the physical dragging violence, but also... a, a, young, a young Oscar-winning actress yeah. around Because they were like stars, yeah. but we've, we've mentioned it before. They were stars, but they were under the studio system these people were they were contracted for x number of films weren't they yeah yeah and and the contracts were long and they you typically have if they didn't play the game properly then you their their careers could be could could be completely fronted clark gable was actually under contract to a different studio for this film and he was wasn't doing what they wanted and so they actually made him be on this film as kind of penance for that which obviously didn't work very well but <laughs> well in terms of it did work well yeah. so it didn't from their point of view yeah i mean the the, the oscars we've, we listed a load of oscar nominations last time out here you go i'm going to list a load of oscar things here these are all winners yeah frank capra and harry cone as best picture because the, the producers capra for director Riskin for screenplay. That's Robert Riskin, by the way. Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert both cleaned up from the, on the actor, lead actor roles. And at the Venice Film Festival, Capra won a nomination as well for the Mussolini Cup. Sounds like a, a secret right wing football so tournament or something. This anyway. is the, this is, it's of the, of the, what they call the big five Oscars. It's picture, mm. director, actor, actress, adapted screenplay. And this yeah. is the first it's a clean sweep. Three films to do that. Can you name the other two? Um, did Schindler's List do it? No. Nope. Um, oh, God, don't tell me Titanic did. No. <laughs> no, One Flew Over <laughs> no. the Cuckoo's Nest and Silence oh, of the yeah. Lambs. So yeah, if you ever okay. want... Yeah, Didn't know that. Three very, very different films. <laughs> very, very. <laughs> we both took a golf beer at the same time. That's yeah. always great for uh, anyway, radio-related right, so The plot... Where have we had this before? Pampered socialite, uh, Claudette <laughs> Colbert, yep. um, tries to get out from under her father's thumb by running away, um, in Florida. So by getting, she gets on a bus, meets Clark Gable's renegade reporter. Now she's recently got married and her husband, who she doesn't really know very well, is in New York. She has to get from Florida to New York using public hmm. transport and no money. Clark Gable's reporter kind of thinks, well, I've got a story here. I can I can do quite well out of this. He's obviously not doing very well in his current job and is currently having arguments with the with the editor, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Anyway, they end up travelling together by bus. They obviously get on quite well together and you can work the rest out for yourself. Yeah. You can see yeah. where this is going. They get to know each other. They suddenly fall into each other's charms in terms but of... But the verbal sparring on this is, is next level. It's fantastic. It's, 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 it's brilliant, brilliant. Isn't it? The dialogue goes 100 miles an hour. They've both got an answer to absolutely everything that each other says. But, it, it, I mean, you just watch it getting on... I mean, it makes you want to get on a bus in 1934 in Florida because they meet all the yeah. other characters on the bus and they have sing songs and they talk to each other and they have stopovers in places. Yeah, and you've got a seedy character it's who tries probably, to... It's possibly first... even the first road movie. Yeah, yeah, I, well, it might be. I'm not sure. I'll have to look into that. But you've got, what's his name? Scadlan or whatever his name is. The I can't remember the name of the guy who tries to hit on Claudette Colbert's character, first of all, when she 
avoids sitting next to Clark Gable because yeah. she's snippy with him, sits next to this guy who then starts hitting on her with a load of CD remarks. He then comes over pretending to be the husband, shocks him out of the seat. And, um, and then, you know, later on, he comes back into the equation, uh, realizing who she is and that there's a reward for her safe return from being on the run or yeah. whatever she's doing. And, um, and there's a brilliant scene where Gable handles that situation, which is just brilliant. It's so funny. Um, so you've got this, this arc, another character archetype, this CD kind of over talkative bloke who, who's overbearing, you know, she, every time he saves her from something, um, she says, Oh, thank you for that. He goes, Oh, I didn't do it for your sake. I didn't, yeah, I couldn't I stand the bloke's that. voice or something. Yeah, you know? yeah. So they're always getting one up on each other, even when they're not. You've got two or three absolutely classic, famous Hollywood scenes, cinema history in the making yeah. here. You've got um, the scene in the guest house or whatever it is where they've, they've got a bed sheet they between, between their beds, single beds in this one room accommodation. I, 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 I don't know if it's kind of urban myth or not, but apparently after that, Cary Grant takes his shirt off and reveals he's bare chested which yeah. I don't think normally happened in films. Normally, And at that time, most men wore a vest. Yeah, but this once, was a shocking scene. Within, this was a shocking scene. And yeah. after that, all men in America refused to wear vests because they wanted <laughs> to look like Clark Gable. Well, it's, I, it's, I, I think that is true. That's that's what I yeah. understand. Is that, to a certain extent, anyway, that is true. Yeah. I mean, there's a scene there where, you know, he's starting to get undressed. He's basically trying to get her to take the bed and yeah. stop making a fuss um, so they could just get on with having the night. And then, you know, sleeping separately in this single bed yeah. within the same room and get on with the rest of the journey. And she's refusing. So he's getting undressed to try and stop her from standing in the doorway. And, yeah. You know, to get out of the way. So there's that scene. And then there's the hitchhiking scene. We won't go into any more details no. and just say it's, it's another classic. It's, it's, it's beautifully probably the done. Most, that's probably the most famous scene from the film, actually. Yeah. And it's, it's one of, it's probably in the top hundred cinema scenes of all time um to, to give you the weight of yeah yeah um, definitely how much that has yeah and it's it's an absolute classic the chemistry um, between the two of them i mean yeah, it just fizzes doesn't it yeah it's it's great gable's brilliant he's got that um he's got that world wary he? chop yeah he, yeah, yeah. About he's, him. he's playing a down at heel um but kind of tough talking um journalist isn't he? he's a newspaper man who seems yeah. to be on the edges as far as the newspaper itself goes he's 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 yeah. the black sheep even in that regard no, isn't definitely he? and the, and the editor who he, he seems seems to have sacked him there or thereabouts which is this kind of flimsy scenario that happens a lot in films people have sacked or are they they kind of hang around there's a lot of you know, a lot of reporters and editors clashing in quite a lot of these films we, yeah, we've already right. gone, gone through it with label lady it's another another one i mean Believe it or not, Gable, uh, Gable and Colbert weren't really first choice for this. So all of, mm. and it's quite a list, Betty Davis, Carol Lombard, Myrna Loy, Miriam Hopkins, Margaret Sullivan, Constance Bennett, Loretta Young, either turned down or were contracted to rival studios. So Colbert right. originally turned it down after refusing to work with Capra again. She worked it with him before on For the Love of Mike, which was a disaster. Um, she, uh, she said she's never going to work with him again. They doubled her salary and she said, okay, where do <laughs> I sign helps. on? And I, they clashed constantly on set, all accounts. She had a lot of tantrums and on the completing the film, she said it was the worst picture in that world. <laughs> 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 Blimey. Quite a strong reaction to probably 
I would say, one of the greatest films of the 1930s. That's yeah. extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. I heard there was friction, but I didn't realise you'd said that. Wow. Yeah, I mean, on, on release, it got mixed reviews. So the more kind of... But bearing in mind, this is 1934. We're not that far out of silent films. Hmm. The more highbrow critics panned it, um, and the initial run in sort of the main cities was not very successful. When it was released as sort of the secondary cinemas in smaller towns, bearing yeah. in mind this is the height of the Great Depression, this was pure yeah. escapist fun, and it 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 was a box yeah. office smash. Because these these screwball comedies were were escapism, prime escapism from Great Depression. Yeah. That's that's primarily what this era, thirty four to forty two, was all about, wasn't it? It was. It was well. It's it's gone on to be an enduring trait of cinema, the escapism from your normal, mundane, everyday life, whatever it might be. Yeah. And um, and even for for other categories of class, I suppose they can still enjoy it. But but for the, the ordinary proles on the street, so to speak, it's yeah. kind of it, it just gives them escapism into a different world, and it's uh, it's great, as you said, the bus scenes. Um, this is a film that's eighty-seven years old. And, yeah, and it's still works. You can relate to it on pretty much every single level. It, yeah. It, and, and be gripped by it. Yeah. The, the general themes and the general tone still, still are, are every bit as relevant today as ever. I think, you know, I think, yeah. uh, it's, it's pretty good. One thing from the thousand and one movies, I might as well carry on the, the theme of going in, delving into that for this episode. Their, their entry is pretty good. I mean, after summarizing the plot, they say, but make no mistake. Frank Capra's It's Happened Once Not, It Happened One Night, is movie magic. This has something to do with how it conjures up an entire milieu, a people's America. Milieu. Milieu. Milieu, sorry. Milieu is, is, French, milieu yeah. is actually um, what Snowy the dog is called in the yes, French version. Right. <laughs> yes, it is. Good show. So what is it, Phil? Milieu. Milieu. Yeah, right. Let's do that again. Take two. <laughs> take nine. Take two. Yes, right. So let's try that again. I've now lost my place. Um, in fact, I've genuinely lost. Where is it? Right. Here we go. Yes, it conjures an entire milieu of people's America <laughs> filled. Shut up. Filled with unlikely rogues and soft-hearted citizens, always ready to share a story in a song or simply exhibit their lovable eccentricities. But the film is also careful to explore exceptions to its basic rule. Ellie's father, Andrews, Walter Connolly is the, uh, the actor. Walter Connolly, turns out yeah, to... he's, he's played this character in a few of these yeah. films, yeah. Now, he, he's seen as this sort of slightly tyrannical father at yeah. first, particularly in the first scene when she's trying to break away from him. Um, goes on to say it turns out to be he's a pretty swell chap, just as the talkative bus passenger, Shapely, uh, Roscoe Carnes is the, is the guy who plays him, ends up as a weasel. So so there's this um, change of perception from what you, what you initially think this character is going to be to what they are. That adds an extra density and richness to the plot, I think. Um, yeah. Again, very well acted as well, which helps. And I think those are really important points, actually. And it goes on to say Capra was expert at cleverly weaving st- a story from altogether familiar and ordinary motifs, eating, verbal slang, ah, nuts, that kind of thing, snoring, yeah. washing, dressing, and undressing. True to the romantic comedy formula, identify, um, identities are momentarily dissolved whenever a masquerade is necessary or able to be exploited for secret entertainment. Although whenever Peter and Eddie pretend to be husband and wife, more serious possibilities and destinies do suggest themselves. A few things to mention on that. First of all, the affable characters. You've got the guys on the bus, 
singing, getting everyone singing, yeah. getting into a feel-good mood on this. Clearly, this po- poverty-driven well, bus. Apparently, after, after this film, Greyhound bus, um, their sales just went through the roof. Yes, so yeah, yeah, people. I can imagine. Yeah, because you're romanticising the notion. Of yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Everyone wants to be there. And you've got the places they stay. You've, you've got these kind of affable, straight-laced characters who I, I told you you shouldn't have trusted them as they yeah. misunderstand what's going on, that sort of stuff. Are they husband or wife? Or are they not? You've got the fantastic scene where the detectives hired by the dad turn up a place where they're staying. And then you've got this deception and yeah. change of identity thing going on again. Gable clocks it. There's no time to hide her. And there's two seats at the table. So clearly there's two people there. So he, rather than try and hide her or something like that, which isn't going to work, he gets into quickly, prompts her quickly into character to, yeah. to play a role. Uh, which she does to convincing enough effect. And those elements are, are great. It's just stories within stories momentarily, yeah. which just all add to the flavour of it all. It's brilliant. Yeah. And I, and, I, I, I mean, I can't say exactly, but I, I can imagine this was a very, very, very influential film. I mean, it kick-started this whole genre. But yeah, quite a lot of the things that happened in this film, him taking his shirt off, for example, probably couldn't happen for a number of years afterwards. And I think there's a lot, a lot, this kicked off a lot of, you kind of your tropes that happen in in a lot of the sort of the rom coms that were for decades. Absolutely, I mean, it's had it really new, it's it's had many many remakes. It's had a lot of Bollywood remakes. Um, the wedding scene um, is actually parodied quite well in Spaceballs, the Mel's book film. If you've seen that, it just doesn't. No, complete... I haven't seen that. It's been on my oh, list right. for years. I really do. It's, a, it's probably the last film that he made that's worth watching. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, so that's worth checking out. Um, in terms of, um, we're talking about Capra as well. Um, one thing to mention as well, Mr. Deeds, I don't think either of us, I'm suspecting, no. have got it in there. But that well, I've came done close my to top me. five now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Mr. Deeds goes to town, um, which of course is, uh, Capra as well. You can't take it with you, um, was another one, yeah. like, in 1938 that I really enjoyed. That's a Jimmy Stewart one. Yeah, it, with it with Gene Arthur about a sort of man from a rich family who meets meets a meets a girl from a very eccentric family. There's there's a lot of fun in it. I mean, there's there's yeah. some wacky elements that yeah, and Gene Arthur's in quite get there. But, Gene Arthur's in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town as well. Yeah, which is Columbia again, but this time Capra um, singularly producing, not with Cone this time, um, and also directing. Um, Gary Smith Cooper, goes who, to Washington. We mentioned earlier, Jimmy Stewart film. Yeah. Where yeah. he thought he should have won the Oscar and didn't, and then won it the so year you've, after. You've got all of these these serious first-rate yeah. actors. You've got Cooper, you've got Stewart, you've got Grant, you've got Spencer Tracy, yeah. you've got and William Powell. William actually, Powell. Was a massive name at, at the time. And again, I don't think he's seen as the very, very top level, but he's yeah, you know, he was a oh, major star, really big, really good play, um, player, as they used to call them. Um, so yes, a most valuable player, you could say. Um, there's films like that. Capra, Capra is indelibly linked with this genre. And even in other stuff he's done, like um, It's a Wonderful Life, which is is actually quite a lot darker than people always oh, seem yeah. to think it is. It starts with Christmas a near-suicide scene. <laughs> yeah. And Capra is, I would say, one of the auteurs of the American psyche of that era. You know, he encapsulates so much. It's a strange one because he made all of these films and then up to World War Two, And then after World War Two, <laughs> he made a lot of films during World War Two that were kind of in support of of the 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 u.s war effort 
And I don't think he was ever the same after that. Yeah, interesting. I wonder why. I, I haven't read a biography of his. I reckon it will be interesting, uh, not notwithstanding an autobiography, if any, yeah. any such exists. I can't think of any of his films from the sort of 50s or 60s. Hmm. Um, no, I'm not sure if he was still around. Yeah. Frank Capra Jr., of course, is a, a name that pops up a lot. He does a lot of commentaries on special editions oh, for okay. DVDs and Blu-rays, a lot of it talking about classic Hollywood in general and obviously his dad's stuff in particular. Yeah. Um, that's, that, that's almost the most indelible of all American traits, isn't it? Naming your son exactly the same as you. Uh, that yeah. makes it nice and easy to, to trace your family tree years later, doesn't it? That one. Anyway, <laughs> so that's, that's, um, so, so it happened one night is my number two my and number it's one. your number one. So that just leaves me to reveal my number one, which is drum roll. <laughs> I know hey. what you've chosen. <laughs> and, it's Cary Grant it, film, isn't it? It is a Cary Grant film. If if you are guessing correctly, it's this a is Howard outrageous. Hawks film. Yes, it's not in your top five at all, is it? I, I've got. It's bad, isn't it? Uh, bringing up Baby and this film. Um, yeah. There's so many good Cary Grant ones, and I think I've kind of penalised it because there's so many really really good ones. That, that yeah. They all. They're all so good that I couldn't choose one, so I didn't choose any of them, which is really bad. But, well, yeah. we shall I, reveal I, what I, it is. Yeah, I did. I did. I did genuinely love this film. It's probably my this and bringing up baby are probably my sixth or seventh. Awful truth, yeah. probably my eighth. This is the moment when you find out we're talking about an obscure film that you had no idea about. <laughs> no, it isn't. It is, of course, His Girl Friday, yes. nineteen forty. Which is, as you've already mentioned, it's Cary Grant. And, um, it is, oh, well, and also I should mention Rosalind Russell, who's brilliant in this role. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Not someone we've mentioned so far. No. Someone who we have mentioned, of course, is Ralph Bellamy, who yes. plays the straight laced, affable alternative match for the female lead. Yes. There we go again with that subject. Um, again, you've got an ensemble of different people you may or may not recognize from other films. And, and that's the way it goes. This, this is a film which is, um, it's got an interesting history. It was made, I think, as a play originally called The Front Page. It was then made as a film called The Front Page. So this is actually a remake, technically speaking. Um, it's got a bit more one... of a dark heart than maybe some of the other films that we've yes, sort of spoken about. Exactly, exactly. So there's this guy basically on death row, you know. Yeah. And they're, they're the reporters with a scoop on it, yeah. He makes a desperate bid for freedom. He escapes and then hides out. This is in the early stages, fairly early stages of the film. Hides out in the newspaper offices, which is quite quite an interesting yes. concept. He's hiding in a bureau in one of the offices at yeah. one point, which is bizarre. This, this, by the way, got made again as another version of the front page later on, I think, in the 50s, which was reasonably successful. Quite a good film, by the way, but not as good as this version. Yeah. This is definitely the best version. I can't talk about stage, obviously, but I can talk about on screen. This is the best version of it. This is, you've mentioned repartee, fast-paced dialogue. I think I've never seen a film that has Comedy of remarriage, dialogue. yeah. Comedy of remarriage. Oh, Rosalind Russell is a force of nature. She, she is absolutely superb in this. I think, if anything, she outdoes Cary Grant here, yeah. dare I say. That's it. not easily she, done. She, not, not at all. She, I mean, they are both brilliant in this. And it is rapid-fire dialogue. I think it's possibly the fastest-paced dialogue of any film I can think of. Um, yeah. I might be wrong on that, and I'd have to think of that in more detail, really. But it's right up there. And bearing in mind this is 1940, anything that's been done since 
could be said to be copying this yes. in terms of that fast-paced dialogue. So essentially the concept is Cary Grant uh, and her were both working for the newspaper. She has effectively split up with him and she's now getting suited with Ralph Bowerby's character and planning to go into a more leisurely, semi-retired, well, in terms of uh, work-wise, um, scenario of just being a uh, an affluent wife of a, I think it's an oil baron, isn't he, or mm. something, or some, something like that, um, from Texas or somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, Cary Grant wants her back. Initially, it seems to because she's a great newspaper person, uh, and he wants her back on because it's his newspaper and she's great in it. But also, of course, you have this, as you yeah. said, the remarriage element. He's she she wants her. something other than just a life working for the paper. He's yeah. Work is his life, and she mm. wants something more. It's another one of the, she'd be taking away one of the things to get the other, which is what yeah, he's the, trying the, to convince her. Yeah, is not, the other thing the they're planning forward. on is the uh, the honeymoon to go and see Niagara Falls, which comes up in a, almost all of these films as well. I think if you got married in the first half, half century, <laughs> the twentieth century in America, <laughs> your honeymoon had to go to Niagara Falls. I had no idea. <laughs> right. Okay. That's what they. Um, uh, they go on about it all of these. Well, maybe oh, we should be doing that. Yeah. Maybe we should be doing this in the first half of this century. I don't know. Mm. I'm, both of us. Um, well, actually, well, I got married I've last century. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds a long time ago, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, anyway, getting back to the film. So, I mean, um, again, this is in Barry Norman's top hundred, and and quite rightly too. In fact, I didn't know this film until I read his extract from this book and thought, "Oh, got to check that out." It sounds up yeah. my street, and mainly because of um, what he says. If I may read from it, he says. What is most noticeable about this partially transsexual adaptation of the front page, that's because one of the main characters has changed sex, um, is its pace. It fairly crackles along in a welter of verbal slapstick and overlapping dialogue, and it says much for both cast and director that it never becomes so fast as to be incomprehensible. The front page itself has been filmed twice by Lewis Marstone in 1931 and Billy Wilder in 1974. Sorry, it's later than I thought, yeah. but neither of these, as it were, straight versions, was as good or as, success, as successful as his girl Friday, probably because what they lacked was the vital ingredient of sex introduced here by the simple expedient of turning one of the main two protagonists, the ace reporter Hildebrand Johnson, into Hildegard Johnson, which is, of course, Rod, yeah. Rosalind Russell's character. At once, the macho rivalry and bickering between Johnson and, and the editor, Walter Burns, uh, Kerry Grant, is converted into something much spicier. The battle of the sexes, that theme again. Now, Burns has a double reason for not wanting Hildy to leave town. Not only would the paper have to find someone else to cover the hot murder story that's just breaking, but he would be losing to Ralph Bellamy, her wimpish fiancé, his ex-wife, the woman he loves, the one he has found he can't live with, but equally can't live without. Yeah. That's that theme as well, isn't it? The can't live with, can't live without. And it goes on to describe the, deta- the details a bit more. Now, tight, we're talking about tight films, packed in, not wasting a second. Perfectly this film cast. is almost, yeah. it's, it's almost on a different scale. It is 92 minutes long, black and white, as most of these are. And it does not waste a second. I, it's it's almost like you've been punched in the face for an hour and a half watching this film. It's that it's that good in terms of the dialogue. Yeah. It's funny. It's snappy. It just crackles along as Barry Norman calls I, it. I, I think it's one of Cary Grant's definitely one of his best performances. 
Yeah, he, he's he's superb in it, and and the fact that Rosalind Russell potentially she's outshines every him, inch of his match. Yeah, yeah. It, it's great, I and mean, you love to see it, don't you? When you get that real matching of talent between yeah. the two, when it's up to that level, um, they're both at the top of their game here. Yeah, I can't believe you haven't got this in your top five. Oh, no, I, I know you've explained why, but maybe you could have swapped Bring Out Baby or something. I don't know, but. Uh, it feels like that that would have to be in there. Well, just just to go through a few details, US um, production, of course. Um, interestingly, it says, oh no, it's 92 minutes. Sorry, I've read the wrong thing. Uh, it was Howard Hawks who also produced it. Screenplay is Ben Hecht, who is a very good and very prolific screenwriter. Charles MacArthur as well. Photography by Joseph Walker, who, by the way, I've forgotten to quote that before. He's popped up in at least two of the other ones that we've okay, mentioned. I've never tonight. heard of him. So he's he's, a, he's one of those jobbing cinematographers who who film things very slickly. It's very pristine, clear contrast, black and white. It looks very good if you've seen it at the cinema yeah. or a, reprodu- a reproduction print. It really does look good. Um, cast is Cary Grant, Rosalind Russell, Ralph Bellamy. We've mentioned Gene Lockhart, who's popped up in some of these other films as well. Uh, Cliff Richards, he's uh, sorry, Cliff Edwards rather, he's very good. Cliff Richards would be a, a, a real twist, wouldn't it? Yeah. The thing is, he'd probably only been out three years old. But anyway, um, <laughs> what I was going to say is, there's a quote in here, um, scintillating Rosalind Russell is the wisecracking star reporter. Her editor and ex-husband, Carrie Grant, is the unscrupulous and aggressively charming Walter Burns. Can't lose in the middle of a hot murder story. When she announces that she's quitting to marry a meek square, notice wimpish fiance, yeah. meek square. This is how Ralph Benavides described. I wonder how he would feel about that now. Anyway, um, Walter's incredulity and dismay launch him into a conniving overdrive. So you've got plot contrivance, you've got fast changing situations. You know, the police are looking for this guy. They come all over the place to look for him. He's having to be moved from one location to another. They're trying to time stuff so they can get this story printed. They don't want him caught, but they want to get his exclusive. Gary Grant's very, yeah, fast on belittling yeah. her, yeah, her new bow. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's it. There's loads of comedy comedy fun to be had with that. Who does, he's not aware that he's being made fun of most of the time, let's be, let's be honest. Which, of course, in itself makes it funnier as well, if the character doesn't realise that. Yeah. Hmm. He's quite Reagan-esque, isn't he? A little bit, I think. Yeah. Ralph Bellamy. By the way, if anyone is wondering if they've heard that name before, some of you, if you haven't listened, uh, sorry, if you haven't watched classic Hollywood, you may still recognise him from Trading Places, which we've already mentioned tonight. Yeah. Um, him and Don Amici, who are both, you know, seasoned actors through the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, pop up as two ageing millionaires who make this bet about the Eddie Murphy character in Trading Places. So if you're wondering... Uh, if you've heard him before, he's the silver-haired guy of the two. And Don Amici uh, was also yeah. in a Paris set Google comedy, again with Claudette Colbert, called Midnight in 1939, which is oh, yeah. another yeah. one that's worth watching. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Well, I've said my piece on His Girl Friday. I think, I, I don't know if you've covered any more you wanted to add there, Phil, but no, I love um, it. all I can say is these films, I fell in love with these films. First time I saw them, I think this is probably one of the driving forces of me really loving classic Hollywood. There was, I worked in a video shop when I was about 
18. And I remember an old lady coming in and she was renting this, that and the other. But she got me into a few classics like Casablanca and things like that. And then I think I started reading the books like the Barry Norman one and started hearing about these. Other My knowledge of classic genre. Hollywood is so poor. Oh, there's so much to learn, so much to discover, I Phil. Should, I'm with jealous. the exception of <laughs> Hitchcock, my knowledge of anything before the late 60s is pretty non-existent well we're gonna have to do we're gonna gonna have to put that right we're gonna be working on that definitely Definitely, yeah film noir is another one we're gonna do that at some point definitely and well various other things i want to to have a look at (laughs) billy wilder at some point because i haven't billy wilder has to go on there because billy wilder's in my well i don't know if he would be actually would he be in my top five directors maybe that's the subject for another episode um he'd be up there he'd be in the running and i love billy wilder i love Howard Hawks, they're, they're two of my favourites, along with Hitchcock, who you know already, mm-hmm. and some of the modern directors, who I'm sure we'll talk about later. But in terms of, yeah, in terms of this episode, just to summarise then, so R5, so you you came, you went first, so your number five was? Ball of Fire, which you need to was, watch. I do, and I, I went for the Philadelphia story. <laughs> the student becomes the master. <laughs> the tables are turned, Mr Newman. <laughs> yeah, so I have Philadelphia story at five, which you had at four. Um, yes. And the awful truth is that I had the awful truth at number four. And I number had Libeled Lady at three, which you need to watch. I do. The tables are turned, <laughs> Again, uh, I have Bringing Up Baby at three. Number two, you have... My Man Godfrey. Which is a great film. Watch it, people. Watch it. Yeah. I had one of the classics. It happened one night, and another of my classics on my list is His Girl Friday from 1960, it's from 1939, is it? Yeah, 1939, yeah, which is, uh, I, thought, I thought it was... Oh, 1940, it's got a oh, lot of my notes here. Yeah, 1940, yeah. yeah. You know what, it's, it's, it's variously described as both, I've, yeah. I've seen it referenced as both ages, so I would imagine it's made in 39, released in 40 probably, yeah. something like that. Anyway, whatever it is, it's in the era and it, it's, it's got to be seen. If you haven't seen any of those films, and two of them I haven't seen, as it turns out, watch them, guys and girls. You've got to watch them. Yes. You've got to watch them. Honourable mention. Honourable mention. So I would like to mention um, Sullivan's Travels. Yes. The, the Preston Sturges film. Most famous now for the fact that it's about a film director who wants to make a film called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which the Coen brothers then actually hmm. made the film, the film of that he was supposed to be making in that film that's a really really good film so that's joel mccray setting out to experience life as a homeless person uh he meets veronica lake uh and sparks fly obviously uh the lady eve is another preston sturgis film from the same year that is definitely worth watching um another joel mccray film i really enjoyed that came quite would have probably made my top 10 would be the palm beach story from 1942 Mm, yeah where, uh, available on Blu-ray, I noticed in the shops the other day. There's a new release, and that's uh, Claudette Colbert again. Yeah, hmm. yeah. And um, well, from that list you've just mentioned, the Lady Eve is another one that came close to my top five. I had a, a, a sort of like a, a pool of about six or seven films that were swimming there or thereabouts in the waters. And the Lady yeah. Eve's a great film. Barbara Stanwyck again, isn't it? And yeah. uh, Henry Fonda playing a, a the foppish kind of. Um, the um what's the word the foil the comedy yes. foil for for her she's a con woman working with in cohorts with someone else we won't explain any more than that yeah and he's a brilliant isn't he he's a brilliant i really enjoyed he's, that yeah he, it's almost like harry grant in um 
in bringing up Baby Antithesis, in, and he's, yeah. he's almost exaggerated version of himself. He's, he's, but so he's exceptionally so, naive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very humorless and seemingly completely sheltered and yeah. oblivious to the world outside of his little bubble. Um, no airs and graces, no arrogance, but just a lack of any kind of com- common sense. Barbara Samick, of course, identifies him as a suitable mark to try and con. And it's cracking yarn. It's brilliant. I saw this only once, BFI at the cinema. Um, there was a, a season of Barbara Samick films, I think it was. Oh, okay. Um, I went along and saw it. It's a great film. Um, Barry Norman. Well, you didn't see Ball of Fire. 100. I know I didn't. I know. <laughs> Barry Norman's got this in his top 100, by the way. And Barry this... Norman knows his onions. Yeah, he does. He even had he does, his own did. pickled onion selection in the supermarket. <laughs> exactly. Just to prove a point. Exactly. Um, this is probably the high point of the brief but glorious directorial career of Preston Sturgis, says Barry. A deliciously sexy comedy set on a luxury liner with Barbara Stanwyck as a professional card shop and Henry Fonda, her selected victim, a millionaire scientist who is more comfortable with snakes than with women. Mind you, the way she behaves, there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference, says Barry, yeah. and so on it goes. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great film. It's really, really good. Um, Henry Fonda, often, he, he's, I, I think with a, a broad scope, he tends to be character, uh, well, typecast in a sense, yeah. within a very broad scope. Apart Here, from Once Upon a Time in the West, which you obviously Once Upon a Time in the West, exactly. West you knew where I was going yeah. with that, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> That and this are probably the exceptions mm. to the rule, in that he's naive. You know, it just doesn't seem to fit the normal bill. Um, that's a another, great film. Another 1938 film, again directed by George Cukor and starring, guess, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, <laughs> would be the film Holiday. That, that was good fun, about a mm-hmm. couple planning to go on holiday, just yep. having a go at each other for an hour and a half. Yep. Um, you can't take it with you. You mentioned, didn't you, earlier, I think. Yeah, yeah. Arsenic and Old Lace. Uh, Sullivan's Travels, of course, Preston Sturgis, same yeah. as The Lady Eve. 20th Century, um, which is Sporks, isn't it? Um, which is also, um, in fact, that's, I, I can't remember if I've seen that or not. It was a while ago, and I'm not completely sure. Um, you've got uh, Mr. Deeds, who mentioned Trouble in Paradise, Topper. There was a series of these films. It was um, with uh, Carrie and Roland Young were the makers it was um i think it was a character uh, I, don't, I haven't seen the films i think it was a character that was liked and that they did spin-offs so there was a few of those yeah it's a gift which kind of is a screwball one i'm not sure it either. really fits in that's a classic that's very 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 good palm beach story you've mentioned front page i've mentioned holiday you've mentioned my favorite wife um mr and mrs <laughs> smith as yeah well, oh yeah course. hitchcock yeah Ball of Fire, you've mentioned, obviously you've got in your top five. The Thin Man, that I think became a series of films as well. That um, sounds like a horror film. No, I don't know that no, one. No, it's, it's, um, I've forgotten who's in it actually. They're, they're good, they're entertaining. They're almost yeah. like B-movie versions of Screwball, so it's kind of like that for me. Um, there's something called Easy Living, which I've not seen, but apparently is yeah, well that's regarded. Arthur, yeah, that's well, yeah. Yeah, same with Nothing Sacred and Midnight, which I've not seen. And The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, which I'm I don't think I've seen. Yeah. Anyway, just to quickly go on with a couple the, of um The only other one I've got on my list is uh Ninochka. Oh Ninochka, which is in Barry's top hundred, by the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, that would Yeah, I'd I'd not consider that one. Um interesting. By the way, my wife has disclosed her top six. Yeah. 
controversial. She's gone for Woman of the Year, which I was talking about with Spencer Tracy, Catherine Herbert yeah, at that. number six. She's gone for Bringing Up Baby at five, The Awful Truth at four. You're going to cringe. Arsenic and Old Nace, oh, Lace yeah. at number three. I mean, Cary Grant said that he was, I thought he was massively miscast in that. It just, in the, he says it himself, but I think that he said that he was just, he shouldn't have been in it. He, he looked, he, he looked too, he as in physically, he looked too big for the role somehow. Yeah. I think it needed somebody kind of more put upon. Yeah. Somehow. Oh, well. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I she's got him at number three. There, there were yeah. bits in it that I enjoyed, but as I said yeah. earlier, tonally, it was all over the bloody place. Yeah. Her number, her top two are the same as mine. It happened one night at two. This girl Friday at number one. A Fantastic. woman of excellent taste. Yes. <laughs> and so we move on then, Phil, to the next subject. That was great. No, thank you for suggesting that one. I, I really yeah. enjoyed that. Well, I'm really pleased. I'm really pleased, firstly, that you've delved into it, because I think it's always good to kind of expose yeah. people to different films they've not seen. Um, but I'm most pleased that you've enjoyed them. It sounds yeah. like you've, you've found lots to, Definitely. to enjoy from that. And I don't know if you watched them with your missus and whether she enjoyed them or already knew them or anything like that. No, she wasn't really quite so interested in some of these. Films, oh, okay. So. Fair enough. Fair enough. So it's just you. I've, I've converted. Yes. I think um, she probably quite enjoy a few of them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe get we've on been, to We've been binge well. watching too much TV, unfortunately. Yeah. We've been, I, I hear you've caught up with Squid Game. By the way, I've caught up with almost everything, I think, <laughs> over the last few months. It's great stuff, isn't it? It's very good. Yeah. Um, so, so there's that. Um, in terms of the next subject, we aren't going yeah. to expose you to a brand new subject at all, are we? Phil? We're going to probably do my, if I were to ever go on Mastermind, this would probably be, if not, if it wasn't going to be Iron Maiden, it would be the James Bond films. So what, what you need to do is you need to <laughs> be confident you're going to get through the rounds because you have about three, yeah, three to do, don't you, on Mastermind if you get to the final, I think, something like that. I've read so all the to, books, even the rubbish go. spin-off ones. Well, <laughs> not quite all of them, but a lot, far too many than I should have. I've watched the yeah. films repeatedly, particularly <laughs> the John Glenn 80s ones. Because uh, that's what I grew up on, so I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, it's a, surprising, really. I'm surprising to hear that you're looking forward to covering James Bond, Phil. Uh, really, is a a shock to the system. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's 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 obviously it's a world of information. I, almost, I'm going to just turn on the record and then just sit back and listen to you for two hours. This is we go on about how much I love Roger Moore and nobody else does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, I mean, I'm a little bit older than you in terms of like the timelines. And um, we'll get into this obviously next week, but, um, I think my first one I remember at the cinema was Roger Moore. I think first one I saw at the cinema was Few Eyes Only and I've seen every single mm. one since. Yeah. 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 And we have already seen the new one. So we're We've up to date on one. that yet to decide whether or not to plot spoil what we, what we might have to do. It depends really if we we'll see. We'll, we'll, we, we'll record one in early January, won't we? Where we do the top five of the year and. Yeah, I'd be surprised if it's not on my list. Yeah, so so if if the new Bond film is featured, we might hold back on plot spoiling yeah. on that episode. Yeah. Um, either way around, whether it's in or not, when it comes to the films of the year, clearly that's going to be one of your films of the year. <laughs> let's yeah. cut. Let's cut no. Yeah. Um, cuts to the chase there. Then then obviously at this point, if you haven't seen it by then, we'll give you a warning, but we probably will plot yeah. spoil. In January, there, I, there are I certain things that happen in it that just have, would have to be discussed. Hmm. Yeah, but of course, what we'll do is we'll, we'll everyone's allow... seen it anyway. And haven't they? Haven't they? they I've only have. just seen it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, 
at the fantastic Picture House in Ockfield, by the way. If anybody is in Sussex and hasn't been to the Picture House in Ockfield, go there. Kevin, the guy that owns it, I'm, I've, I've had him on a podcast for something else before. I met up with him on Saturday when I saw it, uh, the Saturday before this episode was recorded. Is that where my and mate Corin was doing all the horror films? Or? It was, yes. And, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, it was it was good fun. It was really good fun. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see your mate there, but maybe we're, we're we're talking about maybe getting him on the show. Yeah. Fingers crossed, we can in the future. We're going to do a few guest ones. Yeah. Um, as far as it goes, though, that wraps up for this episode. So, Screwball Comedies, we've we've done our stuff. Um, remember, you can tweet us, Film Fives in word form, and the number one is the Twitter handle. You can check us out and on just Facebook. Film Fives, Film Fives with the number five S on yes. Facebook. Come find us and, and verbally abuse yeah, us. That's we right. love it. And, and you know what we're doing next. So if you are listening to this before our next episode. We out, want your you top can... five bomb films. Exactly. Tweet the hell out of us. Because I think Phil's going to go to town on this one. I do love Bond as well, but I, I just think it's going to be like standing up in a tidal wave, really, trying to get a word in edgeways when it comes to this yeah. one. We'll see. We'll see if I can hold my own. Who knows? Yes. We, but uh, until... Yeah. Very quickly to mention as well, I've enjoyed the rest of this podcast with a vocation brewery, naughty and nice chocolate stout. Phil's visuals there, I'm just going to show you that. That's pretty good. I'm on the, the, believe it or not, I'm on a brew dog vehicle called Palmer Violets. What? (laughs) Yeah. Here we go. Which is. Oh, that's um, still. Let's see if that really is. Roses are red, violets are beer. So it's it's a brew dog beer with Palmer violets in it. And you can actually go. So Palmer as in P A R M A. As in, as you remember the sweets, the palm. Palmer violets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. gone. I moved from marmite to to Palmer <laughs> violets. You're really pushing the boat out. You're 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 challenging it the, the, the beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Phil Phil does not have skinny jeans on. I can confirm. No. Or indeed, a rather too long beard. Anyway, that wraps up this episode. So please do contact us about Bond for the next episode. Hope you've enjoyed this. If you haven't seen any of these films or indeed from previous episodes, please check them out. They're really worth seeing. They're great. They're fantastic. Honestly. Particularly, just watch it. It it happened one night and then you'll think, oh, I want some more of that. And you know where to go. Yeah. Take Phil's window in to this world of screwball (laughs) comedies. Phil, it's been a pleasure as always. It's been brilliant. Thank you very, very much. We shall sign off by saying cut.